All right, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to need one. If you'd like to have one in your hands, uh, our ushers have ones that they can give to you. So just go ahead and put your hand up if you need a Bible this morning, and they'll get you one. And uh, if uh, you're receiving that Bible to use this morning and you do not have a Bible of your own, keep the one you get. And it's our gift to you in Chapel Hill. Just be reminded that we will always have Bibles for you to give away. If you know someone that needs to have the Word of God in their hands and you'd like to give them a Bible, we have lots of Bibles Excuse me, on hand always to give away. So just remember that. <clears throat> All right, this morning we continue our series of messages on the subject of the gospel. We're talking about what the gospel is and what it means to us. The word gospel means good news. So what is the good news? What is it and how has it affected our lives? What is it? How has it affected our lives? And what have we been told to do with this good news? And really this series started back on Palm Sunday. Uh, We acknowledge the good news that our Savior King had come to earth to save us. We looked at the way that the crowds hailed Jesus as king, but we also looked at the reality that they had certain expectations of him that did not line up with who he was or why he had come. We can see so much more clearly than they could, and so we looked ahead to the Easter weekend with understanding and anticipation. And then Easter arrived, and we remembered and celebrated the good news. Jesus made his way to Calvary and willingly took upon himself the punishment that we deserve for all the things that we've done wrong. His body was beaten and crucified as the final atonement for our sin. His blood was shed to spiritually wash us clean of the stains that sin left on us. And then Resurrection Sunday came and we continued our celebration of the faithfulness of God in fulfilling all his promises to us and raising his son to life, defeating death and offering us that eternal life as well. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. And we have seen that good news impact many lives here as it's been proclaimed. But I didn't want it to end there. Uh, The gospel, the good news that God has delivered to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is maybe bigger than we thought. As we dig into the Bible, the word of God, we discover more and more good news. In God's word, we see so many truths that bring hope and peace and freedom and encouragement and perspective. And on it goes. All of it, all of it is good news. All of it, all of God's truth was intended to reach us as good news from him, from our Father. And so God leads us to keep looking, keep digging, and discover all the good news that he's passing along to his children. On Wednesday evening, I had the privilege of meeting with some of, uh, of the parents of our third to fifth graders here at the church. Um, we talked about this very thing. We explored some of the ways in which we can pass the good news along to our children And again, that good news is not limited to a one-time talk that we have with our kids. There's a very important point of declaration that we're looking for in our kids' lives when they declare their belief in Jesus and when they trust him with their lives. But making disciples of our kids goes far beyond that one conversation. The good news speaks into every area of their lives, and we as parents have all kinds of opportunities to deliver that good news to our kids. Our kids need to experience the good news about their identity, 
the good news about their self-worth, the good news about their need for belonging, their independence, their emotions, their values, their role models, their purpose, their boundaries, their challenges, their success, and on it goes. The good news of God applies to every area of their lives, and it applies to every area of our lives, and it applies to every area of our neighbor's lives as well. As those who have been set apart for the gospel, for the good news, we've got to broaden our understanding of the good news to see that there are opportunities all around us to speak and model and live the good news into the lives of those around us. And so we talked about following Paul's example and being set apart for the gospel and becoming all things to all men in order that he might reach some of them with that good news. Then last week we looked at the gospel of grace. And I want to circle back and talk for just a minute or maybe 10 about the gospel of grace again. God has poured out his unmerited favor on us. We are the blessed recipients of things like forgiveness, eternal life, identity, peace, joy, power, and pages more. We have received God's unmerited favor. He has lovingly adopted us into his family. We are now saints, and none of this became ours because we did so many great things to deserve it. God's grace found us, and our Father lavished us with his riches in spite of our sin and our selfishness and our pride. And we have been saved by that grace, by the amazing grace of God. Is that good news? Is that good news? Are you slowing down and pondering just how good the grace of God is on a regular basis? Can you see how blessed you are? Can you see the generosity of Jesus Christ? Can you see the love that your Father has for you? I hope so. I hope we covered enough of the gospel of grace last week to get you thinking about just how blessed you really are. But there's another dimension to all this. If we are truly set apart for the gospel of grace, which we are, then does God maybe have something more in mind for the grace that he bestows on us? Come with me on a little side trip for a moment here. Jesus told a parable to his followers in Matthew chapter 25 about a man who went on a journey and he left his property, his riches, with his servants while he was gone. To one servant he gave five talents, to one he gave two talents, and to another he gave one talent. And in the parable, Jesus sets up the servant who had received five talents and the servant who had received two talents as the ones who did the right thing. They invested the talents and they gained more riches with them. Now keep in mind that Jesus is using some pretty valuable terms here. A talent was an amount of money worth about 20 years of wages for a laborer. Jesus was talking about a vast amount of wealth, a large sum of riches. A hundred years worth of wages to one. Forty years worth of wages to the second. Now, before you get distracted thinking about how cool it would be if God entrusted you with 100 years worth of wages and what a great job you would do of investing that money for Jesus, let me suggest something even more valuable. Grace. Grace. 
the kingdom of God has a, a different monetary system than we're familiar with on an earthly level here. Was Jesus speaking in this parable of just money? Was this a lesson in finance? Or was this maybe something bigger? Something kingdom-sized? What if Jesus was speaking in his parable of the riches of the gospel? Things like grace that he's poured out on us to put to use for his sake. He was, after all, speaking of the kingdom when he told that parable and others. And if that's the case, and obviously I believe it is, then how does a citizen of God's kingdom like you and me invest what he's given us? And what, based on that parable, happens to those who do not invest what God has entrusted them with? Well, let's not go there, especially on Mother's Day. That's just discouraging. But let me just say that it involves darkness, something that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and some weeping and gnashing of teeth. And gnashing is an indication of the presence of rage and pain. It ain't pretty. Back to grace, a much happier topic. God's grace has been most often described as amazing. That's because it is. Last week we looked at four unlikely recipients of grace. Paul, the persecutor of Christ followers. Peter, the one who denied even knowing his Savior three times. Mary Magdalene, the demon-possessed woman. And the Samaritan woman Jesus encountered at the well. Yes, the adulterer who had been with multiple men. In their lives, God demonstrated for us where the grace line is to be drawn. At what point did God hold back his grace? When someone dressed poorly while visiting the synagogue? When one of his chosen ate pork? When one of his church members was caught smoking a cigarette? When that R-rated word slipped out of someone's angry, hurt mouth? When someone from the church judged a brother or sister in a gossip session with others from the church, did his grace line get drawn there? What about when that believer with the Christian bloodlines got caught in that affair or those five relationships? What about when that woman acted inappropriately because of the work the seven demons were doing in her head? Did she cross the grace line? What about the trusted friend that turned his back on the Son of God? Surely he's on the denied side of the grace line now. What about the passionate but ruthless religious leader who had followers of Christ executed? Now, come on. He has to have excluded himself from grace at that moment. Where's the line? Where's the line? Where do men and women behave so badly that they stop deserving grace? Well, guess what? The line has to be somewhere beyond Paul and the things he did, doesn't it? It has to be somewhere beyond murder. It has to be somewhere beyond betrayal. It has to be somewhere beyond adultery or gossip or rage or abuse or abandonment. Grace line is so far out there that I really don't think we can see it. We can't see the place at which grace is no longer available. God just keeps giving it. 
And I can't express to you just how thankful I am that we can't see that cutoff point because I don't deserve it. And neither do you. God's grace is for everyone and that grace has been given to you and me. We have been entrusted with God's riches for our time here on earth. We have been entrusted by Christ himself with the riches of heaven and he's asking us to invest those riches for the sake of his kingdom and to make him look good to this world. Jesus has left us with a hundred years worth of grace and when he comes back, he's expecting to see a return on his investment. So where in the world did we get the idea that we can draw the grace line ourselves? In the parable Jesus told, the two servants mentioned first invested all they had received to earn more for their master. It does not say that the servant who received five talents invested one of those talents to make more. He went all in. Whatever the measure of riches they had received, that's what they invested. Listen, brothers and sisters, whatever the measure of grace we have received is the measure of grace God is expecting us to extend to others. So why do we cut off the grace we extend to others as soon as they do something that we don't like? Why are we so stingy with the riches that have been so generously lavished upon us? How can we cut off the grace we extend to someone simply because we don't approve of their lifestyle? Did Christ cut off Paul's grace because of his lifestyle? No. Why do we cut off grace when someone stabs us in the back through gossip or manipulation or slander? Did Christ cut off Peter's grace when he stabbed Jesus in the back? Why do we cut off grace when we discover that someone's emotional baggage or scars are more than we're qualified to handle? Did Christ cut off Mary Magdalene's grace when he discovered she was possessed by seven demons? We act like we can't even handle a little depression in others sometimes. Why do we cut off grace when we find out that this person we know has a drinking problem, is sleeping around, has a criminal record, is an atheist? Did Christ withhold his grace from the woman at the well in Samaria? No. No, he did not. As servants of Jesus Christ called to be apostles and set apart for the gospel of God. We are to be extensions of God's grace to our world. And let's not forget that it is God's world, the one he created. The riches of Jesus Christ have been poured out on us for the sake of investing in the kingdom of God. Grace has been poured out on us for the sake of investing in the kingdom of God. For the sake of extending God's grace to those all around us. We have to stop withholding grace. Grace is no longer grace when it is earned or deserved. Grace is grace when it is undeserved. And we are to be agents of God's grace in this world. That's the gospel of grace. You and I have been set apart for the gospel of grace. We are called by God daily to represent his grace to this world. 
Let the people in your life learn of God's amazing grace through you. Extending and expressing and communicating grace to those people in your life who have not yet met Jesus will be a great way of introducing him. You have been set apart for the gospel of grace. I have been set apart for the gospel of grace. There are so many people around us who are living without God's grace. And that is true poverty, to be separated from God and his riches. And without God's grace, they're living in a state that the Bible describes as darkness. So this morning, I want to add another dimension to this thing that we call the gospel. We've talked about the gospel of grace. Now I want to talk about the gospel of light. The gospel of light. Think about the darkness all around us. There's no avoiding the fact that this world apart from Christ is living in darkness. This world is the kingdom of God's enemy, Satan. He is the ruler of the darkness. He is the ruler of this world, his kingdom. And so the majority of this world lives in darkness. Think about the things that characterize the darkness. Things like evil, sin, pain, rage, sorrow, loneliness, strife, envy, lies, manipulation, gossip, abuse, neglect, abandonment, selfishness, greed, despair, insecurity, worry, hatred, all characteristics of the dark. We see evidence of the dark on a global scale. Maybe you've been following the, the plight of these poor Nigerian girls that were taken against their will by an evil man and his army. In what kind of world does this happen with so little reaction for so long? I can't imagine what they've had to endure at the hands of their captors. The whole ordeal is clear evidence of a world that is living in darkness. But the darkness is not only found far away, removed from my reality and yours. There's evidence of darkness right next door. And you know this is true. There are people all around us living in darkness. And I'm not just talking about wrong lifestyle choices or behavioral issues. I'm talking about the victims of Satan's rule here on this earth, right here in our neighborhoods. Victims of abuse and neglect, of deep hurt loneliness and anxiety, hopelessness, illness, loss, stress, pressure, broken relationships, abandonment, and on the list could go right next door. Darkness is all around us. So when we talk about the gospel of light, we're talking about bringing the light of Christ into the darkness that we see all around us. And this lines up well with the example that Christ gave us. So turn to John chapter 1 in your Bibles right now. John chapter 1. God uses the image of light coming into the darkness many times in his word. John begins his account of the life of Christ with this image. The prophets foretold the arrival of Jesus as a time when those living in great darkness would see the light. This is how John describes it in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, the word and the light John referred to here is, of course, Jesus. So later in John 8, 12, we see Jesus confirming this reality with these words. He says, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John carries this image on into his later writings. Turn to the book of 1 John now, back near the end of the Bible. 1 John. Here are the words of, that John passes along in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is what he writes. This is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As children of God, redeemed and adopted into his family, we have fellowship with God again. And in that restored relationship, we walk with God in the light that not only comes from him, but is him. We walk in the light, and in that light, we enjoy the kind of fellowship we have with God, with each other. That's God's design for us and for his light. Now jump back a bit to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus here, and at this point in his letter, he's addressing the presence of the disobedient all around God's people and their influence on Christ's followers. And so he warns the church. And this is what he says in verses 7 to 9 of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, do, Therefore, do not become partners with them, with the disobedient, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And on he goes. Things just got personal. Did you see that? Note that. Paul is saying here that we were darkness and now we are light. The light is not just something outside of us anymore. We are the light. The light is in us and it goes wherever we go. And it's the light of Christ because it's become a part of who we are. Our lives shine God's light in this dark world. And this, of course, ought to take our minds to the words of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, where he said to his followers, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen, Chapel Hill. You and I are servants of Christ Jesus, called to be apostles, set apart for the gospel of God, set apart 
for the gospel of light. And the light of this city, this church on a hill, cannot be hidden. We are surrounded by the pain and despair of a world living in the dark. We are surrounded by hopelessness. We're surrounded by deception. We're surrounded by blindness. But God has given to us his gospel of light. We have seen the light. We walk in the light. The light is in us, and we are the light. Can you see that? So how long, then, can we let the world around us walk in darkness? How long can we be okay with the plight of those who cannot see the light? How long can we act as if we never heard Jesus tell us as plainly as possible that we are the light in this world? How long until we stop fearing the dark? We walk in the light and the light is in us and the light has overcome the darkness. That's who we are in Christ. We are the light of the world. We are not the ones who have all the answers. We're the ones with the light and the light will reveal the answers. The light will reveal not just the bad in the world, but the good as the image of God is illuminated in the lives of those we reach with the light of the gospel. There's nothing to fear in the darkness because the light illuminates all things and it brings hope and courage as the darkness is chased away. Chapel Hill, the world around us needs to know that there is a light that can infiltrate the darkness that they live in. And as I've said before, the light is far more than just a rehearsed theological statement. The light is hope. The light is relief. The light is encouragement. The light is a shared burden. The light is a reminder of one's value. The light is anything that brings sight to one living in darkness. The light is anything that lifts another's eyes to see that there is something beyond the experience that they call life that is so much more to those of us who walk in the light. The light is a word, a gesture, some sort of expression that awakens a spirit that has dwelt in the dark for too long. We are the light in this world. And the light that is in us has, past tense, overcome the darkness. So as we walk in the light, may God help us to remember that his light has overcome the darkness and we have nothing to fear. Can I just share with you a phrase that I'd like to hear less and less in the church? The phrase is, I'm, I'm just not qualified for this situation. People who walk in the light that has already overcome the darkness are steering clear of the darkness for fear of not knowing what to do with the darkness. People's problems are being written off as too complex, too difficult for the children of light to face. And that fear, that lack of confidence is coming from no other source than Satan himself. Listen, I'm not qualified in myself to face the darkness. None of us are. But every one of us has in us the light of Jesus Christ. And we are simply the vessels that God delivers his powerful light through. 
We have got to stop fearing the dark. The dark has been overcome by the light of Christ, the very light that is in us and shines through us. No more fear, Chapel Hill. No more fear. You are the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Let's go and shine God's light in the darkness. There's a a great story that I want to close with. It's told by a a Christian speaker by the name of Christine Kane. Um, She's from Australia, and she tells a story of coming to the U.S. with her young daughter for a visit. And while they were here, they visited Walmart, um, a visit that they referred to as a dramatic cross-cultural experience. (laughs) And Christine purchased a flashlight for her daughter while they were there. And her daughter received the gift and got really excited about it and said, thanks, mom, thank you for the flashlight. And then you know what she said? Let's go find some darkness so I can use my new light. There it is, Chapel Hill. Let's go find some darkness where we can shine the light of Jesus Christ. Let's move toward the darkness, not away from the darkness. Let's move towards the hopelessness, the despair, the loneliness, the pain, the sorrow, the lives that need to see some light in their dark place. They're all around us, all around us. The darkness is all around us. All we have to do is move toward the dark and be the light that we have been called by Christ to be. The gospel of light for which you and I have been set apart. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now to take the offering and the worship team to come and close out our service with some song. Will you pray with me, please? Father, once again this morning, we have, we have reason to praise you. We always do. We praise you this morning for shining the light of the gospel into our lives. For coming in as a Lord and Savior who has overcome the darkness. But Father, we confess that so many times we have taken the riches that you have bestowed on us and hidden them. Pleased that we have it ourselves. Pleased that we have the light ourselves. That we have your grace for ourselves. That we have not heeded your word to invest what you have given us for the sake of your kingdom. God, we know that through eternity, we are going to walk in light. We do now and we always will as your children. There is nothing for us to fear because we are in you. You are in us. We walk in your light. We are your light. But now God challenges us to go and find a dark place. 
Challenge us to find places where we can shine your light, where you will be able to display your glory through us. God, forgive us for how much we have feared the darkness. Forgive us for those times when we felt like, well, we we really aren't qualified to do anything about that person that's in such dire straits. We don't know what to do with that person who's going through so much hurt that, well, we just don't know how to have a conversation with them. So we back away from the dark. God, forgive us for that. Help us in all circumstances to take your light and go and find a dark place to shine it. Show your glory through us. Let us be who you've called us to be, a light in the darkness, the light of the world. Thank you for all that you've poured out on us, for how generous you are to us. Grow us up to be good investors of what you've given us. So that when you return, you will look at us and how we've invested what you've given us and you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's all we want to hear. So give us the courage, Lord, to move towards the dark. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.